The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technology. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Welcome to Money Reimagined yet again. This is Michael Casey. I am your co-host. My other co-host is Sheila Warren. She's with us today. And we are going to be diving into the world of CBDCs, money, uh, the future of digital money, the role of central banks, and the interfacing with tokenization and lots of interesting stuff there. And we are uh, absolutely honored to have Hyun Song Shin, who is the head of research at the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, to join us in just a moment, but just very quickly, Sheila, is there a chance that we get a look at the an early look at the report that will be coming out the time that this podcast airs uh, from the BIS? Uh, we had a look at chapter three on the uh, future of digital money. And any initial kind of takeaways? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, the BIS, of course, has been engaging and supporting and running actually CBDC experiments for many years now, uh, including back when I was at the forum. The World Economic Forum, we were working closely uh, with the team there to think about uh, different kinds of CBDC experiments. And so it's interesting to kind of see where those experiments have led the BIS uh, in terms of their current thinking on this. And I'm excited to dive into that with with him today and to to get a sense of the recommendations, what they're based on, uh, you know, the the pros and cons. Uh, I have some questions uh, about some of the findings, but uh, let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we bring you in here, Hyun? First of all, just if you don't mind, briefly introduce yourself, tell us a bit, a little bit what you've been involved in, and then you know, give us a kind of a high-level uh, synopsis of what is in this chapter three of the broader report that uh, you're working with. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And thank you, Michael and Shilu, for having this uh, discussion. I'm Hyun Song Shin. I'm the economic advisor and head of research at the BIS. We've been working, as you know, on digital innovation and its implications for the monetary system. What we're doing this year is to discuss how tokenization could actually put the monetary system in a way that can really serve uh, real economic uses in a way that actually you know goes beyond simply uh, the standard payments role of money. So 
Just to give you some background on this report, we take a historical perspective and we just note that the innovations in the monetary system have coincided with huge leaps in economic activity. You know, one very important development hundreds of years ago was the development of money as ledger entries overseen by trusted intermediaries. And that really coincided with this huge spurt in commerce and trade. And then we went into the digital age when that, uh, you know, those ledger entries became digital rather than simply on paper entries. And we think tokenization could be the next big thing that really expands the capacity of the monetary system to uh, not only improve the things that we're doing today, but to open up the possibility of actually doing things that are not taking place today, but which could be enabled through the through the functionalities provided by by tokenization. Tokenization is not new. There are already very well-established initiatives in the private sector, both uh, from commercial banks and other private sector groupings, as well as in crypto. What we're saying is what we need there is to have a tokenized version of a CBDC that can knit together all the different elements of the financial system to really increase the scope of money of central bank money in the same venue as all these other tokenized uh, assets and other forms of uh, private money to knit together the whole system, you know, open the possibility of new arrangements that can really expand the universe of possible contracting outcome. The final piece of the argument is that we can do this if we have uh, a platform where we can have a tokenized version of CBDC right at the center as the settlement asset. But around that, we would have other forms of money and we're advocating tokenized deposits as a, as a particularly, I think, uh, you know, good form to knit together the various payment means around CBDCs, as well as tokenized securities and uh, you know, other financial and real assets. And we call this a unified ledger. So it's unified in the sense that it has money, both uh, the settlement asset, the CBDC, as well as private forms of money, as well as other assets. Yeah, we've been talking about the programmability of money has been the term that I've often liked to come back to, to see the power of digital currencies, whether they are private uh, public blockchains, private money, or central bank digital currencies, being integrated into all of these powerful new use cases, smart contracts, and so forth. And I've always thought that it just was critical that we had that payment settlement piece of it worked out. So to have you guys sort of frame this in that, those terms, as opposed to just, hey, we're going to take this fiat money concept and make it digital without sort of seeing how it actually enables all of these other things, I think is really important. When you talk about this unified ledger, I'm sure it's a useful term. It's also one that I think conjures up to me a bit of centralization. And then clearly as the BIS uh, representing central banks, I'm not surprised to have read the report and see you advocating really for this central role of central banks. And then even referring to tokenized deposits, you're really in many respects talking about taking the existing banking system uh, and relying on that as a, as a current form of, of money and, and giving that tokenized form. And you did in the report also highlight what you saw as a number of shortcomings of the other model, which is the stablecoin model, where you have these representations of the dollar or, or whatever existing on public blockchains come down on why you make that distinction, what you see as the important benefits of this centralized approach, because of course, lots of people in crypto are going to support what they would say is a much more innovative, open, 
system and open standards, right? Once everything is built in this unified, centralized way, it becomes really less interoperable. Now, it's that bigger question of open money, innovation versus centralization that I think is part of the challenge here. And yet it seems there is strong arguments as to why you would take money as something that is uniform and critically tied to a government that you would, you would come up with this argument. I think the, you know, this dichotomy between centralized and decentralized, and it may not be exactly the right way to organize this. The unified ledger itself is simply referring to the fact that there are forms of money, as well as a settlement asset, as well as other types of assets that would figure in various smart contracts that are written that interact with money. So that's the sense in which it's unified. And certainly we don't have in mind some kind of you know, single ledger, one ledger to rule them all. Uh, that certainly is not the idea. You know, there could be more than one for the particular use case. Now, the way that the system might operate, you know, it could operate in a decentralized way, uh, but not in a kind of open blockchain way in that um, uh, it is very much a system with entities and objects that, you know, have been, if you like, pre-approved. So in that sense, it's a permission system. But the way that the transactions could take place, I mean, that could itself be decentralized. So I think the distinction is, I think, better posed as if we want to harness the power of tokenization, is it better to go with central bank money and the settlement that it provides together with other forms of private money? Or is it better to go in the direction of the open or the public blockchain, uh, which is a permissionless chain? I think that's a very, very you know, a deep question. I think one way to think about this is we are very much um, in the business of trying to use technology for real world use. So commerce, trade, real assets, um, and to use this type of platform for everyday activity. I think for, for that reason, um, for that purpose, it just seems like a much better way, much more direct way to just build on what we have already. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, in spite of the great interest and the excitement that crypto generated, the real world applications, I think, are still fairly limited. And I think it's worth thinking why, uh, you know, that's been like that. So, you know, this is not just to detract on crypto as such, but just let's just think about some of the hurdles, why it's so difficult to use a public blockchain, for example, for providing trade credit, you know, supply chain financing for real world trade. So, you know, there what we need to do is to have some kind of assurance that the mapping from the real world asset, you know, like an inventory that's uh, in a ship, map a one-to-one onto a token on a public blockchain. What does that mean? That means that you need to somehow immobilize or lock that real world object so that uh, the token is fully agreed by everyone to be the digital representation you know, of that real world asset. Now, what would that involve? So among other things, what, what that would involve is some kind of legal framework that says, look, if you are the owner of this particular token, then you own that shipment that's in that particular ship that's you know, currently in the, in the Indian Ocean. Now, what would it take for that, uh, for that to take place? Now, in the current system, you know, there would be various registries uh, you know, there would be a shipping registry or a property registry, and it would be a matter of um, making that um, particular, you know, line item in that registry live on the tokenized platform. Now, you know, that's not easy, 
but I think one can easily imagine how that could be done uh, if there were the right legal framework and the right kind of immobilizing, you know, locking mechanism for that to take place. How would you do that in an in a public blockchain, um, especially you know if the uh, if the legal framework might not be fully consistent, you know whose legal framework are we going to use? Is it country A or is it country B? So, so already from uh, right at the outset, there are these very very sort of much larger you know problems that we need to overcome before we can use the technology. And I think it's not an accident that you know these kinds of very very big legal impediments. This is why I think it's much easier to use the public blockchain technology for crypto, which itself just lives in, in the crypto universe, than it is for, for the real world case. From our perspective, from the perspective of making sure that the financial system, the monetary system is going to serve real world use cases, uh, you know, we feel it's just much more direct route to use something that is already familiar, something that we know already works, then imbue it with the power of tokenization, thereby to really fully expand that uh, capability. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. So I think it's really interesting, of course, to focus on some of these real world cases that something like this ledger could uh, engender. And I think these are many of these are things that, you know, we've been as an, I think an industry or, or even as, as on this podcast have talked about before and, and been thinking about for many years. You talk about uh, supply chain, you know, uh, opportunities, trade finance. We actually I think one of our first episodes, Michael, the show was about trade finance, green cell that collapse and kind of what it indicated were opportunities. Uh, of course, in that case, using a permissionless system, uh, green finance, right? There's been a tremendous amount of activity in the crypto blockchain community around uh, carbon. We've done many, many episodes on that here. Uh, it, the, the report, I, this chapter rather, is extremely dismissive of crypto and DeFi, which I found interesting and arguably unnecessary, but that point has landed early on and also leans very heavily, which was not surprising and I think makes a lot of sense, uh, into the idea of the two tiers, right? That you'd have uh, the central bank money, you have private money, uh, and that those are essential, and that you don't want to just have the central bank running everything, which, of course, is something the WEF, as you know, published a, a report under my leadership in 2020 that that would leaned in heavily to the wholesale CBDC example, but said that the retail level, it's hard to make the case, and I think this remains true, that a retail CBDC run by a central bank and managed by a central bank makes a lot of sense versus the current system where you actually have bank money and some of that interface is handled by the private sector, which just has more resources, I think, to to engage uh, there. But I wanted to talk about that last part a little bit about this wholesale versus retail CBDC, because as I read this, and this is where I, I just was curious, because I don't know that I quite grokked it. Uh, I think you're making the case in this chapter that wholesale CBDC, I think we can set aside. I think that's extremely obvious, very well proven, multiple pilots and experiments, etc. At the retail level, though, it did seem like you were saying that retail CBDC uh, is superior to stable coins. And I didn't quite follow that 
argument, if I'm even paraphrasing it correctly, and I'd love to hear you say a bit more about that. Yeah, um, yeah, Shelley, the, um, I think the, the part that you're referring to is where we compare uh, stable coins and uh, tokenized deposits. I mean, we do have a little bit of a discussion on retail CBDCs, but the thrust of the chapter is more about the way that uh, a tokenized version of a CBDC in a wholesale form could really you know, play the anchoring role for a tokenized deposit system. And the main argument that we use is that is built around the concept of the singleness of money. And the singleness of money refers to the fact that you know, it's, uh, it's something that we're all used to, uh, you know, whether we actually pay in cash or whether we use our app and uh, you know, make a bank transfer. We don't necessarily distinguish private forms of money and central bank money when we, when we make a payment. You know, a, a dollar is a dollar. So whether we use a bank transfer or whether we use cash. And I think that's really one of the triumphs of the, of the current monetary system. And it's very uh, interesting to think about how that came about. Now, if you, if you think about how the, the current two-tier system worked, when a customer of bank A makes a transfer to a customer of bank B, there isn't a direct transfer of the liabilities of bank A, you know, as in a stable coin. And that's a direct transfer as a bearer instrument. What happens today when you make that bank transfer is bank A debits your account and then uh, informs bank B. Uh, and then bank B credits the account of the, of the receiver. And in the meanwhile, there's something very important that goes on in the background, which is that um, the central bank debits the account of bank A and credits the account of bank B. So in effect, what's just happened is that that transfer takes place in central bank money. So even though it's a private payment, uh, that settlement takes place in central bank money. So it's in effect like you've used central bank money to make that payment. And that's what really is at the heart of the singleness of money. Our argument against stable coins is that it's much more of a bearer instrument. So you know, when you make a payment using a stable coin, it is a direct transfer. Um, and uh, so, the, so the liability is transferred directly to the receiver. And what we've seen is that to have a property like the singleness of money, when you have stable coins as being the main form of payment, you need some other mechanism to actually sort of maintain that. I mean, it could be some kind of you know, rebalancing. It could be a pool of some kind. But in general, even if the deviations from par are small, there will be deviations from par. Even a very small deviation, if there is a deviation from the singleness of money, it actually detracts from the purpose of money where you simply don't give it a second thought as to what this is worth. I mean, if there is an exchange rate, it's really an asset rather than, you know, rather than money. Stable coins can serve as a vehicle asset uh, where you can transfer from one asset to another. We just feel that it's much simpler, much more elegant if you just have money having the singleness property. So this is why we're actually advocating this structure where you have central bank money as the settlement asset, which underpins everything. But then all the consumer-facing activity is done by other private intermediaries. So, well, I think the predicate there is that you, the most trustworthy actor in all of this is the central bank. And I guess I'm not entirely sure that holds up. And I, I would welcome Michael. I think, you know, we get on this show many times. We've talked about his experiences in Argentina and, and, and times when a central bank hasn't necessarily had the ability or the authority or, you know, insert the noun 
uh, to to provide that singleness, essentially. And, and, and a lot of that, of course, is just historically what we've seen, not necessarily that it's a superior system. It's a system that has existed for a while. Now, I think there are reasonable minds can certainly argue, uh, as I think you are in this paper, that we should lean into that system, you know, the two tiers, the central bank holding the ultimate uh, account system of account, all of those things, I think, are, are certainly, you know, plausible. Uh, but I also think that there are other opportunities that have been opened up when you think about open permissionless systems uh, that in some of the, the areas that you talk about in the paper uh, that about the tokenization of assets, particularly around supply chain work and other things like that where you could have different models that I think um, reasonable minds could also lean into and support, including many folks we've had on the show. But Michael, I'm sure you have a lot to say about the signals of money as a general matter. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, I'm like, glad you mentioned Argentina. I, I, in fact, it does lead me to a bit of a segue, but just just my own thoughts on it. I think of this concept, I, I like it. I like the idea of the singleness of money, This because the sort of the, the, the common expectation that a dollar is a dollar, right? But I think it's a social construct. I think it is something that we all agree to be the case. And I actually believe that that happens in many cases in an organic way that can happen quite independently of a central bank. And again, in places like Argentina, uh, where I spent six years, it, from time to time, it would be around some other reference point and not the government's central bank money because there was no trust in that central bank. So I think, you know, in an environment like now, where we've had moments where we've had bank failures, we've had uh, a host of questions around monetary policy and the efficacy of that, and an increasingly decentralized internet itself that opens up all sorts of different new mechanisms for value exchange that are quite outside of the norms of this. It's going to be very interesting, let's just say that, to see the push and tug, the push and pull, if you like, between this vision of what a singleness of money is and an alternative. And I, I, um, I think people have often argued that the, the, the claim against the wildcat money experience in the United States at the turn of the century is often dismissed as of, oh my God, this, there was completely different reference points. But there's a whole lot of actually very reasonable reasons why those bank issued or state issued banknotes started to sort of vary and had a lot to do with geography and separation from bank branches as opposed to anything else. So there's a world I can imagine where it all just hews towards an accepted standard. We, we don't have much time. So I think maybe I was going to get you to talk a little bit about the interoperability question because that actually speaks to some of this. But I think maybe one element that's important in the BIS being there as this reference, international reference point is important. How do you incorporate the idea of a, a, a currency exchange in this? You're absolutely right, Michael. And just to go back to your previous point, of course, uh, you know, money is a social construct. The duty of the central bank, of course, is to preserve the value of money. And that has, you know, several aspects. One is to make sure that the purchasing power of money is preserved. That's making sure that inflation doesn't get out of control. It's, it also means you want to have the value of money so that the value of your currency relative to someone else's currency, which can act more as, a, as an anchor, is also stable. And that means your exchange rate, your currency shouldn't collapse in value uh, in, in exchange rate terms. That's, that's also a very important notion. So I guess, you know, this is very much tied in with the core role of central banks to defend the value of money, to preserve the value of money by conducting monetary policy, by conducting all its prudential you know, duties in such a way that money exactly does what it's supposed to do, which is to serve its role as the unit of account and the medium of exchange, but in a stable way. 
Now, on your point about the interoperability uh, between central banks, I mean, the focus of uh, this year's chapter is very much in a domestic context. So we're thinking of, uh, uh, of this notion of unified leisure, first of all, in a domestic context. Uh, so there's only, uh, you know, one central bank, uh, you know, in the story that we're telling. And then, you know, we will have the private sector intermediaries. That will be the main point of contact with the private sector. Of course, you, you know, we can go beyond uh, this particular notion and imagine a platform where there is more than one CBDC. And in fact, you know, what we've done at the BIS is to look at the so-called multi-CBDC platforms. And, you know, we have projects like Project Enbridge, Project Dunbar, mm-hmm where we have you know, experimented with several CBDCs all on the same programmable platform. We don't have commercial bank money in that kind of platform because we were just focusing on how the different CBDCs would be you know, interacting. All those uh, experiments show that uh, you know, there's nothing special about having more than one CBDC there. Okay. Uh, you, know, you just need to have you know, all of them that are sort of satisfy all the prudential requirements and you know, have the, the consensus mechanism operating in a way which operate on the CBDCs directly rather than on other tokenized assets. So I think the interoperability in that sense is not an issue. I am going to have to cut it short, unfortunately. I'd love to hear very, very quickly, uh, though, in just one sentence, like what sort of support are you getting from central banks around the world for this approach? Is there buy-in? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, this is not science fiction. This notion of a of a tokenized environment where we have, uh, you know, central bank money. You know, there is a project running at the New York Innovation Center. It's mm-hmm. at the New York Fed. They have a project on tokenized deposits. And of course, the, the Federal Reserve is providing the tokenized form of, of central bank money in that context. It's, you know, it's an mm. experiment. It's, so yeah. much more to pursue on this. We'll have to get you back. Unfortunately, we have to call it short. Hyun, uh, it was a great pleasure to have you on, Hyun Son Shin from uh, Head of Research at the BIS, the Bank of National Settlements. Sheila Warren, thank you very much for being with us. There is so much more to talk about this topic. I think that we are early days in this, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how your research develops and how it's accepted both by central banks, but also obviously the broad uh, users of money around the world. I think you're going to find there's some contentious uh, responses to some of it, but it's all it's all very important stuff and very interesting. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you to all of you listeners. You can listen to us here weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear your feedback. So if you have any thoughts on this episode or any other ones, email us at podcast at coindesk.com. Uh, and use the subject line, Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Thank you very much for your time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.